This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we have a special episode because we're joined by Greg Lemkow, who's co-head of our investment banking division, but not for long. Greg's been with the firm his entire career since he joined as an analyst back in 1992. He's announced that he's leaving at the end of the year, but before then, we wanted to catch up with him, get some reflections on his time at Goldman and how the investment banking industry and the deal environment has changed since his early days. Greg, delighted to have you here on the program. Jake, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's go way back to your first day at Goldman Sachs in 1992. What do you remember about that day or that time? My first day was June 1st, 1992. And I actually started ahead of analyst training. And I remember I went in and kind of got my cube and did all my paperwork and got staffed on a deal and was told I'd be flying on a flight that night to go to a client meeting the next day, which was absolutely terrifying and kind of horrifying, I have to say. And I remember I called my parents and they said, did they know what they're doing? Like, isn't this Goldman Sachs? You don't know anything. Like you just got there. I was like, yeah, I guess I just got here. And so I went on a flight. We were selling a bunch of paper mills for Procter & Gamble. And so Mac Heller and I, Mac who was running the, I think he was running the merger business or just about to run the merger business at the time, got on a plane to Memphis and he kind of talked the whole time. So like a nice enough guy, a little nerdy at the time, but I was still kind of getting the Dartmouth out of me. And we went to a meeting the next day and it was fascinating. It was a meeting Procter & Gamble was selling and Warehouser was the buyer. And so we had a long conference room table and I'd say everyone in the meeting, their probably average age was like 60. And to me as a 22 year old, they looked like they were hundred, honestly, on average age. And after like five minutes, Mac Heller got up and left. And I'm now the only Goldman Sachs person there. And they're doing a management station. They start going around the table. And one dude, they start introducing themselves. It's like, I'm George Warehouser. My grandfather built the company. I've been at the company for 42 years. And they're going around and around. 42 years, 28 years, 36 years. It gets to me. I was like, I'm Greg Lemkow, Goldman Sachs. I'm still in my first year at the company. It was like hour 20 at the time. So it was actually an amazing lesson. Yeah, Goldman throws you right into the fire. And, and it was a great lesson for me because it felt like my whole first analyst year was just like, give this kid absolutely more than he deserves or can handle and see what happens. Well, it worked out well, but the scale of deals has changed dramatically during your time here. Just compare or contrast the size of transactions you worked on back then with the ones you've worked on in the past year or so. Yeah. So it's a great, I think the bookends of my career, the first deal I worked on that closed, it was a sale of a company. They did like roofing products. It was $40 million was the, the deal size, the size of the deal. It felt like a reasonable size deal at the time. The first deal I worked on by myself, I won the pitch and I went and did it. It was a Periscope company for you know for submarine. That was $30 million deal. And it was fascinating. Those are the first two deals because literally last week in my last kind of th- days at the firm, we announced a $40 billion deal on Monday and a $30 billion deal on Tuesday, selling Slack to Salesforce and helping S&P Global buy IHS markets. So yeah, 100 times, I guess, at the scale, which, which I don't think is exactly on pace with the market. But you know, the deals have definitely gotten larger in size and scale. And the fees we receive now for these transactions dwarf the size of the deals I worked on when I first got here. So the business has definitely gotten a lot larger and more profitable. So you've covered the technology industry. Let's talk about the technology that we work with. Obviously, they had planes back then. Uh, you flew uh, on your first day uh, to Memphis, but there were no cell phones really at the time, or at least not in wide use. And there was no email. How has technology changed the way you interact with your teams and, and your clients? And it's crazy. And it's changed in a bunch of ways. I think it's allowed us to be a heck of a lot more productive as you would want and hope and expect. 
But I remember the early days when you would have to do a common stock comparison. You would literally go down to the library on the 20th floor at 85 Broad Street. You'd go pull the annual reports. In some cases, you'd go to the microfiche and print it out and get all the old financial statements and then come back and put them in your Lotus 123 spreadsheet and try to model it. And it seemed like these absolutely brilliant insights you were coming together to tell what the EBITDA multiple was. And we can kind of print that off of Yahoo Finance nowadays. And so the, you know, what has been interesting has been, you know, what we did is we took, you know, commoditized information that was hard to get and analyze it and show it to clients. Now that is so readily accessible, it raises the bar in terms of what we need to do with non-commoditized information and insights. So I think it makes the job more interesting and valuable today. There was no email. As you said, no cell phones readily available. And, you know, if you'll recall way back in the day, the, the firm was addicted to voicemail. You just voicemail all the time, nonstop. And I still remember vividly in the early years, you know, being on vacation somewhere down in an island in the Caribbean and like be driving around, you'd see a payphone. You're like, oh, like we got to stop and pull over because I have to check voicemail from the payphone because I haven't checked voicemail in four hours and who knows what's going on. Again, I think the technology makes you a heck of a lot more efficient. And in some ways, it lets you work remotely a lot easier and have a little bit of flexibility. But you also have a hard time unplugging today in a way you didn't. I mean, you know, one of my first deals as an analyst, one of the other paper mills, Procter & Gamble, was in Edmonton. And so it was in the summer. So you'd go to the buyer visits all day long. And at 3 o'clock, you'd be done. And you could, I don't know, go play 18 holes of golf because it would stay light out. But once you were done, like you were done. No one could track you down. No one could bother you. You know, they may leave you a voicemail, but you didn't check. You didn't have to do your work. And so there's a bunch of trade-offs in terms of how technology has impacted the life of a banker and the impact we can have with our clients. So when you look across the industry that you've worked in, the investment banking industry, from M&A to IPOs to financing, what have been the biggest shifts in the industry and innovations that you've seen over the decades? In some ways, the deal is still a deal, but things have obviously changed pretty dramatically as well. Yeah. So we talked a little bit of the size and scale of the deals has been fascinating in terms of it, of how big they've gotten and the pace at which transactions happen, the amount of capital that can get raised, and just the pace of activity that continues to happen. I think the role of the banks has been different also. I mean, I think back to what we were doing back in Goldman Sachs in 1992, three, four, it was almost like a boutique. We're doing a bunch of M&A and some equity, but there weren't a whole lot of debt deals and there was not a whole lot of derivatives or complexity. And it was, you were a lot more aligned to clients. You had kind of house accounts. And I think as the business got bigger and scale increased and we became lenders to our clients, which sometimes made us counterparties to clients, if some of that client relationship just got more complicated and different. And I think as we aspired to have number one market share, you couldn't you know, just pick a house account in each sector. You had to try to do everything for everybody. So I think the business has gotten a lot more complex in terms of the relationship with clients. And as our business has gotten bigger, we wanted to do more things. You know, just the scale of the industry is compounded massively. So we've talked a little bit about how the industry, how Goldman's changed. What stayed the same about the firm over your time here? I'd say culture. I mean, it's amazing. I started here before the IPO. And so everyone says, well, they must have changed massively from being a private partnership to being a public company. I think not really. I think the thing that's changed about the firm has just been the size of the firm. You used to feel like you knew everybody. You didn't. Now you maybe feel like you know all of your division or all of your partners or all of your group. And again, you probably still don't. So the size and scale has changed, but the culture hasn't. I think it's been amazing to see how we've maintained a partnership culture, even though we're not a true partnership. And how that whole orientation of teamwork and kind of one firm first has continued to be pervasive throughout. And that part's been great. And then the other piece is just the excellence of people. And Goldman Sachs gets exceptional people that are incredibly talented and ambitious and somehow gets them all to work in a teamwork-oriented environment where they're putting the firm first and their clients first. And I don't know how you could ever replicate that culture, but it's an incredible thing we've been able to have continue to persist 
even as we've scaled, even as we've become public, even as we've grown into different regions and become a much more global firm, that culture and the quality of the people has persisted. So you talked about that first trip with Matt Keller. How about other mentors? You know, when you look back at the time, what mentors stood out and, and really helped you get where you are today, running one of the biggest businesses at the firm? That's it. The two people that had the biggest influence in my career, probably Gene Sykes and David Solomon, in different ways. From a banker perspective, clearly Gene Sykes. I mean, I was an analyst in the Los Angeles office. He was a brand new partner. And, you know, he continues to be the most impressive investment banker I've ever worked with. He knows more about the deal than anybody in the industry. He knows more about the industry than the client. He knows more about the tax issue than the tax lawyer. He knows more about the legal issue than the lawyers. I mean, he sort of knew everything. And so he was an amazing guy to learn from and to aspire and to do so with such balance and to leave almost every transaction he came away from with our client thinking he did an awesome job and the other side liking him. And it was sort of an amazing thing to try to emulate. You didn't have to make an enemy of the other side. You could actually reach transactions and have everybody walk away like him. So I've always tried to emulate his style and approach and balance around how to do transactions. And then David was very different. I didn't get to meet David probably you know, well into halfway into my career. And 2007 is when we first met. And he had just taken over investment banking and asked me to be his COO. And we really only met once or twice before then. And up until that point, I had deliberately avoided taking on any management responsibility. I wanted to be 100% client-facing and just do deals all day long. And he asked me to do this. And it was an amazing learning experience. You know, I learned how to think strategically, how to run the business. I learned how to talk candidly and directly to people and give direct feedback. I learned how to receive direct feedback um, on a daily basis. But it was great. It was really refreshing to be able to deal with someone with David's perspective on how to manage, how to be direct, how to get the organization to do what you want them to do and how to think a lot more strategically. And I think coming out of that experience, it made me a much better manager and leader of businesses and put me in a position to kind of go on and run much bigger businesses over time. So I'm sure you've served as a mentor to many and probably, I dare say, a role model to some misguided youth here. Since you announced you were leaving a few weeks ago, I'm sure you've been flooded with some notes and memories. What did you reflect on as you heard from people and, and what have you learned about it? It's always fascinating. I'd say that the reaction was overwhelming and not even like emotionally overwhelming. It was actually just literally overwhelming. The amount of people that reached out from way back, you know, Steve Friedman and Lloyd and Mac Heller and all the people from kind of way back in the day that reached out, people that had worked with me, many clients. So that it was fun to hear. There are two things that struck me and maybe one lesson coming out of it. So one of our partners, again, Jim Sinclair, is a partner in the healthcare group, massively talented guy. And he wrote me a note and said, you don't even remember this. In 2008, I sat outside your office. And it was scary. Like we thought we were getting fired every day. I just started as an associate. And like every day when you left your office, you kind of stopped by my cube, you kind of knocked on the thing and, and said something positive or something uplifting. And it kind of just made me feel better. And like there was, the world wasn't going to end. And by the way, I don't remember. He said, You're right. I don't remember. I don't remember it at all. I don't remember. Didn't even remember he sat outside my office, but it was interesting that that stuck with him. And then the other one that was interesting was Cliff Marriott, who's a partner in our London TMT business. And he said, you won't even remember this. We'd won the Spotify IPO. And you and I had called on Spotify way back when they were a private company. We did the investment in them. And then when they went public, it sort of switched to the US team. And Nick Giovanni and Ludwig and those guys ran the IPO. And we got the deal done. And everyone in the US was taking victory laps. And you picked up the phone and called me and didn't, didn't write an email. You called me and said, thank you, because this wouldn't have happened without you at the beginning. By the way, also don't remember doing that. But he said it made a difference, like picking up the phone and saying thank you, and not just an email and going when everyone over here was celebrating, remember actually where it started. And I think the lesson out of both of those things is there's a whole bunch of times, I'm sure you have it too in your career, you're doing something, you're like, man, I'm you know, interviewing this person or I'm getting on the phone with someone's friend or kid who I don't know whether they're ever going to get a job or I'm making this extra phone call when I could be doing something with my family or 
that extra thing that you always do because it feels like the right thing to do and you never feel like you get credit for it, it makes a difference. And the amount of people who came back with stories like that over the years, the little, not the big deals I did, not anything formal I did, but the little things that you did that made a difference in their lives, it, you know, sort of makes you feel like, all right, damn, I'm glad it was worth doing all that stuff. Yeah. So in your work at Goldman, you've spent time with some of the most high profile CEOs and companies that we work with. Any stories that you're comfortable sharing? Any any clients that really stood out? Yeah, I'd say you know, the run in the last kind of five or 10 years in technology has been fascinating because the place we occupy in the world and the seat we happen to sit in and the jobs I've happened to have let you interact with amazing people. You know, we led this investment in Facebook back in 2010 before they'd gone public. And it was originally sourced by Yuri Miller. It was when I was living in London. I remember being in Moscow, cutting a deal with Yuri, you know, back on the phone with Vinier and Gary in New York trying to figure out whether we could do this thing. Eric Lane was saying he could distribute the risk. George Lee was in the West Coast doing the due diligence. And it was sort of just a you know, fascinating insight right at the beginning of the tech boom taking off and the value creation. And in the subsequent handful of years, you know, I've had the ability to interact with Elon Musk when he tried to take his company private at 420 bucks a share and try to figure that out, which included a late night meeting at Elon's house from you know, 10 at night till 2 in the morning, which was fascinating. You know, We were in the middle of the Uber boardroom when Uber was trying to oust Travis Kalanick that company and trying to negotiate that and spent time in the boardroom at Twitter defending Jack Dorsey when the guys at Elliott tried to throw him out of his job. And so it was sort of the unbelievably fascinating characters that you get the chance to meet, you know, true entrepreneurs, innovators, and business builders, you know, that I think will leave a, a mark on the world for decades and decades to come. You know, we get the opportunity to not only be a spectator in terms of what's going on, but be right there as the advisors. They try to guide through these really interesting points in history. So those were all fascinating things to be a part of. If you could think back to your 1992 self, what kind of advice would you give an investment banking analyst that just started out today in the business? I would say, find out what you like about the job. First of all, find out that you like the job. I think some people get into the job because they think they can make money or they think they're supposed to like it. But fundamentally, do you like the job? Uh, Because you work way too hard as an analyst to not like the job and you can't be good at something you don't like. So fundamentally like the job and then find out what you're good at and pursue it. And whether that's being an industry banker or an M&A banker, or a financing group banker. But I think, again, you can be really good at this job if you like what you're doing and get better and better and better at it. There will be interesting things that come along. I almost went to a private equity firm after two years as an analyst. And along the way, there's always been interesting jobs. Get the most out of Goldman Sachs. I mean, everyone's going to leave Goldman Sachs at some point in time. The job offers only get better and better and better. And the longer you stay here, the better you will be because you'll be working with really interesting, smart people for a long period of time. And then embrace the challenge along the way. I mean, I had a whole bunch of situations where I moved geographies or industries or otherwise, and you know, went a little bit out of my comfort zone when it would have been easy to stay in my current job and just coast. And I think it was a lot more challenging along the way, but it made my career last a lot longer. I think if I was doing the same exact thing for 28 years, I wouldn't have lasted 28 years. I think having moved around a bunch of places and being forced to really work a little bit harder and learn a lot more made me better at the job and made the job much more interesting to me along the way. All right. Well, Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks for leaving your brother behind and in the business in the hands of uh, of Dan Dees and Jim Esposito. I think we'll be okay, but good luck to you in the next chapter. Dan and Dan, Jim will do great. Take care of my brother for me. All right. <laughs> that concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in later this week for our weekly markets update where leaders around the firm give a quick take on the latest in global markets. This podcast was recorded on Monday, December 7th in the year 2020. Thank you for listening. 
All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.